0: Working as a poet being mentored by another poet. I mean,
1: that's how life has always been in poetry going back generations.
2: She is also the one who really pushed me to go
3: after what I want. Um, and so we were sitting in my kitchen and we were like, you know what? It would be good if other poets could experience me like, why don't we do it? Let's do it. When us we start next week? Let's start next week. This is Verse Mentors, a four part podcast series exploring the world of poetry and mentoring. I'm Will May from the University of Southampton, and I'll be hearing from poets and mentors across the UK as we uncover the often unsung
1: support that gets our best words into the best places. So, being given Tom Goodman poems when I was kind of six, when i just come out when I was kind of 16. Th- that was this real kind of watershed moment. The idea of the mentor can be just as if not more important
0: than
2: what the mentor actually does. And at that stage I kind of almost jokingly put a note on my computer which is, you know, writing coach, coach thyself.
3: <laughs> In this series we're considering the various places mentoring happens, from kitchen tables to publishing houses to bus stops, We've been thinking about the hidden history of mentoring and discussing why the stubborn myth of the lone poet won't die, and we've been hearing firsthand some of the advice that's changed the direction of the writer's career. In our third episode, What Do Poets Know?, we'll be hearing from poets and mentors Heidi Williamson, Vidya Ravinturin, and Andrew McMillan about the very different places mentoring can happen. I started by talking to our guests about the places they came from and what that might have told them, or not, about poetry. First off, here is Andrew McMillan.
1: So, I mean, the obvious thing about me is that I grew up, My dad's a poet as well, and so I grew up in a, in a house of poetry, which in itself is a kind of informal mentoring towards... Not necessarily the work, because I wasn't kind of interested in writing poetry when I was younger, but to a mentoring in terms of just seeing that it's a possibility, which I think is quite an important part of... Particularly something like poetry that's often... For a lot of people, either invisible or kind of marginalized or contained, or is dead people in books, essentially. And so, what I had was to see it as a kind of tangible, real thing, as it were, um, that someone could do, that someone could make a living of, that you could be a kind of freelance writer, and that that might be a thing that that someone would do, and that poets were alive, that we had these books on the shelves by people who Dad knew, that we, you know, that, that we're kind of living people. And I think that that initially was just. Um, was just such a privilege obviously because then you see that it is a a kind of living thing really and I guess that you know then so from there a lot of the work that I tried to do both when I was freelance and so working in schools or with young offenders or in kind of community settings or now kind of more formally sometimes either with kind of newer poets or with my students at university a lot of it is just what I feel that I got by osmosis when I was younger mm-hmm. which is that anyone's life, anyone's language, the locale that you are from is worthy of poetry, that that's worthy of writing about, that it can exist anywhere, and that it, it is a tangible living thing.
3: For vidian Ravinttherin, poetry might not have seemed like such an obvious career as for Andrew Macmillan, but he grew up thinking something transformative could happen on a printed page. I had a, a strange relationship to books growing up because my, my parents
0: Sri Lankan Tamils, they have this kind of abstract idea that English literature is a really great thing. So the bookshelves had all these works of literature on them, including, I remember my gateway drug, as it were, was uh, um, Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray. I mean, I still love Wilde, but I was totally obsessed with Wilde as a teenager for, for reasons which. I think (laughs) that I think my mum misinterpreted the reason and that led to some interesting (laughs) conversations but but um but I think there was this thing that this book was on the shelf and neither of my parents had had read this book but it was there in our house so it's kind of it was it was present but it was something that could become my thing I didn't have to outspeed my parents or appropriate it from my parents or feel that oh they know more about Oscar Wilde than I do so I'm going to be a bit nervous about reading this thing. So as a result there was a weird sort of I don't know this sort of these dead writers were available as mentors and in a kind of simultaneously homely and safe
3: but also kind of subversive and doing my own thing kind of way. For Heidi Williamson like many people Poetry began at school, but she came to realise that wasn't where it ended.
2: I I wrote at school um, and I wrote my teenage angsty poems and then sort of discovered the world and um, sort of forgot about poetry. And then when I got a bit older, I was working as a copywriter um, and sort of started to think about my own writing again and sort of taking that out. But you're right, when I went to various evening classes and day schools and sort of tried to get as much information as I could, but I was still kind of struggling with what I wanted to do. Um, And I had a a particular session with what was then called the Writers Centre Norwich, which is now the National Writers Centre. They had a free development session with Philippa Johnston um, and it was kind of what do you want to do with your writing? And I hadn't thought about approaching it as if it was not exactly a job, but you know something professional before. Mm And I can't remember how long the session was, it was like a couple of hours. And she just kind of sat me down and asked me these questions about my goals for writing and what I wanted to get out of it and where I wanted to go and what I thought about how I might get there. And I'd never thought about it that way before. Um, And it really kind of sort of opened my eyes to, oh my goodness, this could be a real thing. And I could actually take steps towards it and follow it rather than just flailing about and hoping something might happen.
3: While a mentor can help us make a private desire something tangible, or possible. Poetry can do that too. Andrew talked to me about how reading the poet Tom Gunn as a teenager helped him imagine what it might be to write about gay experience in his own work.
1: Tom Gunn's poems when I was kind of 16, when I'd just come out when I was kind of 16, that was this real kind of watershed moment where for the first time I saw a life not a life that I ever thought I could have, because it's a kind of it's a West Coast of America, oftentimes kind of drug induced kind of certain hedonistic kind of life that he was often writing about, certainly in the kind of mid years. But it was just that because Gunn, Tom Gunn, is a fairly form is a very formalist poet as well and kind of comes out really of a kind of English tradition mixed in with this American tradition, it felt very close to what I'd been taught in school that literature was because I'd done kind of Larkin and I'd done the war poets and and there was something about seeing that kind of gay experience elevated into literature as I saw it at that time where I suddenly thought, okay, so that, that life, that part of me is maybe worthy of that. And then, and then that, you know, that leads on to reading Mark Doty and then much later on American poets like Danez Smith and Ocean Vaughn. And I think that it, it's, it's really interesting because that new generation now that is coming up beneath me and and kind of you know kind of a decade or so younger there's so much more space and kind of a queer visibility in, in mainstream poetry I think in kind of um both in trade press poetry but in terms of what maybe gets coverage and things like that or the poems that people are reading but also like magazines like I remember when I first started writing they were, there had been, I, I would always search for like, you know, kind of places to send kind of my poems that were kind of about this gay experience. And I would always find this one, I can never remember the name of it, but it got, it just, it was defunct, like it didn't exist anymore. And now you look around, There are an astonishing amount of kind of print and online spaces, these kind of new queer spaces where they can share their work. Um, and so really, now if I'm mentoring these kind of newer poets or these younger poets, either formally or informally, you have so much more air to show them. There's so much more of that kind of work being published in this country, I think. Um, and there's just so many more spaces that you can send them to that you can say, well, I think this could be, you could publish this here, or I try this magazine or read this. And I think that's just really, and that shifted very quickly because that shifted in about a decade, I think really maybe less. Um, but yeah, people like Tom Gunn, um, Matt Doty, they become kind of poetry mentors even though Tom Gunn died before um, I ever kind of read him he died in 2004 so it would have been kind of 2006 or 7 when i first read him um but There is something about that kind of mentorship through the text or just that permission. Again, to me, it's all about permission. Then Sharon Olds, who gives one permission to be brave and things like that on the page. That It's just a kind of continuous cycle, I guess, of, of finding the people that give you permission to step further into what ultimately becomes your voice.
3: So wherever we start our journey in poetry, finding a place for us to be a poet and giving ourselves permission to do it can be a challenge. The challenges can be much the greater if we don't recognise people like us in the literary culture. Vidian talked to me about his role in the hugely successful Ledbury Poetry Critics Initiative, a national mentoring scheme for poetry viewers which has run since twenty seventeen. Set up by Sarah Howe and Sandeep Palmer, it aims to encourage diversity in poetry reviewing culture.
0: It's very much to do with the sort of di- you know the racial diversification of the poetry scene and. and And the feeling that you have these sort of young people I mean mostly young people you know we have the odd who's older but people coming through who maybe don't have access to the kinds of networks and the kinds of skill set which one is meant to glean sort of almost intuitively from those networks and so um,
3: they might need some some help with that we've talked a lot about mentoring poets in these podcasts but what is it to mentor a reviewer? I asked Vidian what kinds of support and advice they got. There might be
0: some mentees where I could actually say, you know, let me edit your reviews and here is how you might introduce a review. Here's how you might end a review. And then I might say, when you are pitching a review to TLS or something, write to them in this way. Um, so there's very you know, hard and fast actual information I could pass on there. And then there's sort of my help with that kind of situation. Like I could say, you know, copy me in when you pitch to somewhere, somewhere. But then I think in the library scheme, we're more and more getting um, mentees who are just very advanced already. And then mm-hmm. they kind of um, already know how to do a lot of that stuff. So then it becomes a bit kind of, well, how how could I help this person? You know, maybe we should just meet up on zoom now or whatever and just talk about poetry and and how and how they feel about the contemporary poetry world and what interests them and stuff like that and in that case i guess what happens is it is less about information i'm uploading than something
3: else just some kind of presence if we don't always realize there's a place for us in poetry because we don't recognize ourselves in that world We can also often fail to see how our own experience, whatever it's been so far, might have already got us some of the way there. Heidi works as a professional mentor for writers and she mentioned how often the poets she works with downplay the importance of what they've learnt so far in their working lives outside poetry.
2: Because I'll, I'll ask them, you know, what's your day job? What do you do? What's, what's your past? And they'll say, oh, it's got nothing to do with writing. You know, uh, I've been writing technical manuals for 25 years. You know, oh, great. So you've been working with words for 25 years. Oh, yeah. And you've had feedback on your writing for 25 years. like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so sort of taking all that life experience that they've got and just sort of mapping it towards poetry. You sort of see them do what I did and kind of go oh yeah I see it's just like everything else you can work towards it you can actually you know kind of work on the craft and the thinking and the mindset and all those kind of things.
3: So Heidi helps the writers she works with to see that they know more than they think as well as not knowing what it is they don't know. Something she didn't know early on in her career was how to find a mentor even though she'd worked out that she needed one. This is where the Poetry Society came in.
2: And they recommended Tamar Yosolev, um Tammy, who I didn't know at the time, um, which was good, and I applied for Arts Council funding, got that, paid Tammy, and it was just sort of really, really helpful and inspiring, as much for the affirmation as anything else. I think I thought, you know, she'd kind of teach me her great wisdom and then I'd be better, but actually she was really, really good at showing me stuff that... I knew that I didn't really realise that I knew as well. So she was really, really kind and really calm and sort of gently stretching, but really sort of affirmative as well. And um, so again, that became a really good model for me for sort of seeking out mentors, people that kind of stretch you, but are kind of gentle and kind about it as well, because it's hard enough being a poet <laughs> yeah. without without kind of, you know, having someone that says, no, you're doing it all wrong, you're rubbish, do it this way like I do and
3: those kind of things. One area Heidi was able to see the connection between poetry and her previous working life was in mentoring and coaching, something that's been a mainstay of professional and corporate life for decades. But
2: mentoring, particularly in the business world, is um, say the marketing director takes somebody new under their wing and shows them how to do what they did. Um, whereas with poetry, poetry is so individual and subjective and coaching is more about working alongside somebody so kind of seeing where they're at and where they want to get to and maybe using the benefit of your questions and your experience of helping them look at different options so they can choose where they want to go. What I definitely don't want to do is turn everybody else into me. That would be awful. You know, It's like the joy of poetry is people are so different and what they want from it and where they're heading with it is so different and so individual. So it's more about helping them sort of discover what they want to do and get there, rather than, oh, this is what I did and it's brilliant, so everybody should do that.
3: Heidi, Andrew and Vidian all spoke to me in their interviews about how the nature of what an individual poet needs changes across their career, and that mentoring needed to be tailored to the individual. Yet talking to Andrew and Vidian about how different the poetry landscape looked for them when they were starting their careers... I wondered how changing social and political context also might change the nature of the mentoring and support new writers needed. Andrew Macmillan,
1: Poetry now, certainly the complete works is the big one I think and Ledbury Critics as well that's kind of doing the critical side of it but the landscape of poetry now for my generation looks entirely different because of mentoring schemes that were put in place really. Um, it, that more than anything has had a profound impact on on what's being published um, and then that carries forward into a new generation as well, I think. And because the zeitgeist around you changes as well, which I find really interesting. So you might begin mentoring someone in a certain space or you begin writing in a certain space when a certain kind of work is in vogue or there are certain conversations going on. And through just the zeitgeist of culture and kind of socio-cultural kind of progression those ideas change and so your work has to change but then I think the conversations that you have to have with people about it change or the conversations that you have with other people about their work kind of change as well I guess.
0: I mean there's something here about being a poet of colour too and how this has all happened very very quickly in the UK it's like how we've tried to compress into um, a few years, you know, like the post-Douget years, just something that's been happening for decades here in the U.S. And, and that's obviously caused a lot of resentment as well. It's caused a lot of tension. So when I published my first book in, um, two, I guess it was 2014, and it, it was just a very different landscape even then. I and mean, that's only, I mean, what, that's that's seven years ago. <laughs> even since then, things have changed a lot. Um, and so I am kind of aware of the feelings of sort of loneliness and, and, and of disconnection that, that I might have felt and how to prevent others feeling that. And that's me as you know a bloke who went to Oxbridge as well. And I still felt those things. And a lot of our mentees don't, you know, they might be young women, they, they might be minoritized in other ways. They might not have had that sort of institutional leg up. So it shows that... Um, almost everyone is so terrifically uncertain anyway, mm. at every stage of their life, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but young writers and you know, reviewers are maybe especially so because there's kind of, you're trying
3: to become a good writer. That emphasis on the poet developing and needing more mentors or being mentored in different ways raises the question of how you get a mentoring relationship to finish and how do you say goodbye? Heidi talked to me about that process in her own work as a professional mentor.
2: I always say I'm really, really happy for people to be polypoetic. I think that the more people, the more readers you can sort of share your work with and get their response um, and kind of see how that goes with how you're working and what you're thinking about. So I often recommend things like... um, you know, the uh, Modpo, the huge MOOC that you uh, the University of Pennsylvania run, which is free, it's online, it's just talking about poetry all the time. Um, MMU has, you know, a free range of poetry courses for a while. Anything that I get wind of that people can kind of expose themselves to and pick up more tips and, you know, get more more thoughts and more opinions on, I think that's really important. Because, um, like I say, they're, they're testing it against themselves and who they're sort of becoming rather than just following one person perhaps. Um, So yeah, I always encourage them to talk to as many people as possible, but think about how that impacts on them. Because I remember as a young poet, going to something and you know somebody was really positive and somebody was really negative about my work and obviously I just thought the positive person was nice and ignored her um, and took all the criticism and you know kind of berated myself and decided that I needed to get better and be more like that person and it took quite a lot of years of experience to think well no actually hang on a minute you know I I don't want to be that person I want to be me but I'll sort of take helpful in little sort of steps from other people along the way. So I think that's informed how I work with people quite a lot.
3: This is where the difference between informal and formal mentoring relationships might be felt most keenly, or commercial mentoring versus a kind of gift economy. If we're paying someone a fee to look at our work, we help define that relationship and its parameters in a particular way. So how do our mentoring relationships change when they don't have those parameters?
1: there's something that just puts a real kind of focus then on those sessions that have kind of been paid for that we have you want certain outcomes or you need certain things to come out of them i think i think certainly you know in Avon, they're paying to go on the Avon course and i'm being paid to teach it so there is still it is still transactional but it is as you say it's just kind of layered isn't it and it's still with students they're paying the tuition fees and i'm getting a wage from the university but it, it doesn't feel like that as much. I mean, that relationship is complicated by them being told their customers constantly, isn't it? And a kind of consumer ideal of education that they kind of that is forced upon them. I think and forced upon us. But it does shift. I think it does shift the kind of conversations that you might have.
3: People not on the map of formal mentoring schemes can also be lost to history. Vidian talked to me about one of his informal mentors, Roddy Lumsden a Scottish poet who died in 2020 and who ran the London broadcast reading series.
0: Roddy Lumsden, who was a great mentor to, to many of us, and he, he, a kind of very active person who helped build our careers by saying, look, I will publish this pamphlet of yours. And um, Roddy, again, there was the experience of a gradual falling away, partly because he's based in London. He wasn't ever really one for small talk, so it's hard to maintain a long distance relationship. You know later you know it, it transpired me he was suffering really badly from alcoholism and and so there's this kind of sense of this mental figure just sort of drifting away and i think lots of us have that feeling and how can we reach out to body and in touch with him again so so i guess i'm getting to that point age-wise and career-wise where i've had mentors of kinds who've sort of been there and then disappeared and then think about what where do i go from now how do i relate to to those figures Roddy was just kind of silent just this strange silent man and and so yeah to be in this mentor-mentee relationship with someone who doesn't really talk I like, just sort of <laughs> and yet he had this huge effect on so many people despite not really I don't know communicating very much yes. I don't really know how he he did it but just through various networks and stuff like that and, and and his ideas are very much still out there. We had a list of banned words at one point, just overused
1: words in contemporary poetry, like Lambert or Kareem. Particularly when you're working with um, people who, you know, might not grow up around books or around literature and things like that, or might be less confident with it, that seeing it as a really tangible thing is so vital, or that permission that they might write about the thing that they're interested in. They might write in their own dialect, they might write about their own street or their own village. That that feels a really important thing, that nowhere is poetic until someone writes a poem about it.
3: The more I spoke to Andrew, Vidian and Heidi, the more it seemed that there was a very intricate and complex web of support in contemporary poetry and that it could happen in all kinds of places and spaces. Thanks to schemes like the Complete Works and Ledbury Poetry Critics, it was also becoming more welcoming for people from all kinds of places and spaces too. There were professional mentors who helped new writers plan their careers, specific schemes which sought to make an intervention into UK publishing helping make them more representative and diverse, but there were also one-off figures unattached to any formal organisation, their own ideas and perspectives permeating the work of so many different sorts of writers. But because mentoring is a practical as well as a magical enterprise I wondered what the challenges were of being a professional mentor and coach as well as a writer. Heidi Williamson.
2: I have to be quite careful and kind of protect my own writing because yeah. my, I'm very conscious that my own writing and my own experience is, is also a part of what I offer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I completely stop writing books, how helpful is that to people yeah. that are writing books, you know, and that's yeah. why I'm in it, that's what I love doing. Um, and if I'm working on something... It seems like everything everybody says relates to my project (laughs) because obviously it doesn't but in my head it translates to something helpful that i suddenly realize or you know i can think about um when i first went freelance i was saying i was doing that typical thing of just saying yes to everything because you don't know when someone's going to say you know that there's any more work coming and i just got so i was working so much sort of mentoring and teaching and writing and um it was like I had never gone freelance it was like I was still working full-time in a big yeah. company um and at that stage I kind of almost jokingly put a note on my computer which is you know writing coach coach thyself <laughs> <laughs> um and I, I started to block out like days and weeks where I would decide no that's writing that's sacrosanct that's you know that's that's also why I'm here.
3: So perhaps the practicality of working with a mentor can be helpful too in realising that a writer is not a demigod who exists only on the page but is a person just like us with a diary and a thing they want to finish or haven't quite finished yet. But as Vidyan explains, drawing on the Indian Sanskrit epic, there might be lots of reasons why, earlier on in our writing careers, we prefer mentors who are not just invisible but wholly imaginary.
0: And you made me think of, uh, to, to leap potentially to another epic, the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, where there's a really interesting story in that, which maybe is a bit less familiar, so I'll tell this one. So um, there's this guy, Drona, and he's an expert in martial arts and warf- warfare and stuff like that. And he trains the uh, Pandavar, who were the good guys who went out in the end. But there's someone on the margins of the narrative called Ekhalavia, and he really wants to be trained as a, Warrior by um, Drona, but he just doesn't have any access to him. So he uh, he kind of makes his own statue of Drona out of mud and stuff, and then he sort of trains in front of this statue. So he's kind of making the mentor that you know he wants to to have coming together with the Odyssey stuff. I do think sometimes the 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 idea of the mentor can be just as, if not more important than what the mentor actually does. It's more just feeling that there is someone there. It's a bit of Keats's letters where he he feels that things that he does half at random are later confirmed as being the right thing to do and maybe he has a good angel. He seems maybe this good angel is Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was really important to me because I didn't really feel like there was an existing tradition or subject position or whatever for me to fit into so I would definitely feel that way about I think writers, I think also if they are dead and you're never going to meet them, then that means that you can make them into that sort of sculpted Drona figure where you couldn't, if you could potentially meet them. Um, I think maybe one of the challenges I think we have now is that our over intimacy with writers is that, you know because of social media and all sorts is that you have to find a way of trying to think of them as both. Like they are both an actual person, but also the whatever is established the writing self that is there on the page and then comes up from the page
3: you've been listening to episode three of verse mentors a podcast series exploring the world of poetry and mentoring thank you so much to heidi williamson vidin Rinthrin, and andrew mcmillan for bringing their insights both as actual people and writing selves to this podcast and to the arts and humanities research council for funding this project in our final episode, we'll be hearing from Nick Coa, Pascal Petit, and Mimi Calvati, three incredible poets and mentors who, fittingly enough, have mentored some of our previous guests. They'll be sharing their wisdom and writing advice for poets at all stages of their career. As we'll be hearing from the mentors' mentors next week, I thought we should sign off with
1: Andrew Macmillan talking about the two way street that is mentoring. That younger generation if you think about queerness, has so much more language than we ever did growing yeah. up. Because God, I went to school like during Section 28, almost, you know, almost entirely. So they've been raised in an entirely different context, hopefully. They've got a much broader language to express who they are and their kind of identity and all that kind of stuff. And they're just much, and they're reading much wider, I think, than maybe we did because because the way the internet has kind of shifted, they just have more access to kind of world poetry, to American poetry, particularly as a big influence here, I think. Um, So the other thing I think about mentoring is that when it works well, and when it's going well, I think it's the kind of two-way street to a certain extent, that it's, you know, we're learning from them and what they're writing, how they're expressing themselves on the page,